0: wrote to the church in Colossae, but but we're not going to hang out there. We are going to instead take a, a pause, because the letter has unfolded to the point where we are now looking at what we need to be standing up against. In Colossians chapter 2, if we were to look there together, we would see that Paul says to us and this church that in Jesus, in the Christ, the Son of the living God, there are hidden. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything we need to know is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And in fact, Paul says he's saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. He understands that as Christians, we are engaged in a culture that will constantly be seeking to deceive us with things that sound reasonable and yet are in direct contradiction to the truth that is found. In Christ Jesus. And this is the verse we're going to camp out on for a few weeks now. It's Colossians two eight, where he says to us, Be careful or watch out, be aware, be alert, be on the lookout, that no one takes you captive or makes you a slave or sneaks up on you and grabs a hold of you and whisks you away into captivity, is kind of the picture that's painted here through philosophy and empty deceit. Based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. He's telling us that there are teachings and and things out there in the world that are denying the truth of Jesus Christ. And not just his gospel, but all of the truth and wisdom of all ages that are wrapped up in Christ Jesus. That there are things in our culture, in our world, in our society that may sound reasonable to us, but they are in direct contradiction to Jesus and direct contradiction to what Jesus teaches. And we have to be careful not to be taken captive by them. And and so one of the philosophies that, that maybe we've encountered in the world is that Jesus just taught to love everybody. Love God, love other people, that's it. But we have to understand that when Jesus says these two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it or equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We think that sometimes that means that love is just this one fuzzy feeling that we get to, to experience. And everything's cool because we love. But Jesus explains that these two commands, love God and love your neighbor, are actually the, the two concepts upon which all of the law and the prophets depend or hang. And so these two things are the teachings from which flow things like the Ten Commandments. And and we can see this. If we were to, to look up here at the chart, we've got in the Ten Commandments, the first four help us to understand what it means to love God. The last six help us to understand what it means to actually love others. It is not some sort of personal feeling. It is not some sort of warm squishiness. It is instead, what does it mean to love God? It means to have no other God to have no idols, it means to keep the Sabbath it means to to really give in to the way of living that he has commanded us to relate to him in and then what does it mean to love others it means to honor your parents, don't kill people, duh, no adultery no, no stealing, no lying no coveting, that's what it means, now once again we get to the point in the law where we say well yeah but what about, we like loopholes don't we And and the rest of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, they serve to help us understand that when God says love him and love others, that these are absolute statements with genuine outcomes according to his standards, and he starts giving details about what that looks like. And so, some people, though, have said, well, Jesus never said... Well, here's what we need to understand: is that when Jesus affirms those two commands as being the the heart of the law and the prophets, he is saying the whole Old Testament is my word. Here in Matthew chapter 19, some religious leaders had asked Jesus about divorce, and Moses tells us this thing about it, but we think it's this. So, what should we do about divorce? And here's what Jesus says to them in Matthew 19:4 through 6. He says, "Haven't you read?" He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, in addressing a modern, for him, concern, Jesus doesn't say, let me tell you what I think or how I feel. What does he go back to? He goes back to Scripture, and not just in Scripture. He actually goes back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If you've got your Bibles, just for now, I encourage you to open them up to Genesis chapter 1. Now, this is not going to be like a surprise for any of you, but Genesis chapter 1 details... The creation of the world. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the picture of of the creation of all that exists. And then Genesis chapter 2 is a reiteration or a recapitulation, a going over again, of the specific story of the creation of mankind. And so Genesis 1 and 2 are complementary stories. They do not contradict each other. They complement one another. And Genesis 2 goes into greater detail regarding the pinnacle of God's creation. And who is, what is the pinnacle of God's creation? Look around the room. It's us. Now you might, you know, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you'd go, yeah, not us. But no, us. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the ones that he was shaping for. Uh, shaping the world for, forming the world for. And and we are the ones in, in whom he finds great satisfaction regarding our creation. But Jesus goes back here to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so it is so important for us to understand, if in referring to a modern issue, Jesus goes all the way back to the first two chapters of the Old Testament, what is he saying about the Old Testament in its totality? That it's all his word. What he believes, what he teaches. And just because Jesus doesn't come out and say something specific about an issue or condemn an issue specifically, when he says the Old Testament is my foundation for teaching, the Old Testament is who I am, it's my way of walking, we need to understand that from Genesis to Malachi, all of it is the teaching of Jesus Christ. All of it is his word. In no way does his command, his twofold command, love God and love others, negate the Old Testament teachings. In fact, his command, love God and love others, undergirds the whole of, of what is taught in the Old Testament. It sets the standard for for how we are supposed to live, and then the Old Testament continues to give us the details on what it looks like to live up to the standards that God has given to us. So Jesus. It's speaking to a modern issue regarding, and, and a we go. I'm going to use it since most of the kids are down in kids' church, sex and sexuality. When he is speaking to sex and sexuality, where does Jesus go? To Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And if you've got your Bibles open, we'll see why he goes back to these passages. And it is important for you to understand That in our culture, we are being fed a number of lies regarding sex and sexuality. And that we are being told that Jesus doesn't take a stand on so many issues of our day. Instead, we need to be Christians who stand firmly on God's word and understand that Jesus, He not only speaks from the New Testament and the Gospels, but He speaks from the Old as well. And he affirms the Old Testament in teachings like this and everything the Old Testament has to say. So let's look at, at, at what he says, what Jesus says is true about creation and about us as sexual beings. Genesis 1 Jesus says that, uh, or, or the word says that God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So you see right here in Genesis 1:26 that Jesus is referring back to. You can see it. The words, first of all, who's the "us" in this this verse? You can yell. I mean, God. Yeah. I mean, the Trinity. We can see, so, uh, and, and yes, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see them represented right here in the very beginning of Scripture, kind of hidden under the story, but as, as Revelation unfolds, not the book, but the revealing of God to mankind throughout the whole of the Bible, we see the Trinity reflected all throughout even the Old Testament. And what is unique about mankind We are created. We alone, out of all of creation, are created in the image of God. In other words, there is something unique and special about us compared to all of the rest of creation. Something that is setting us apart and that creates us, makes us, the only aspect of God's creation that he shaped for relationship with him. We are created in His image. The only ones who are able to be in fellowship with one another and with God. Animals are just that. Nothing but animals. Now you might think that your dog talks to you. But anyway, we are created for a special relationship with God. And we see this in Scripture that Jesus refers back to. And then He says, Scripture says this, and this is more specifically what Jesus is referring to in some ways. It says this, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. So you see that, that it's, it's reiterated, it's said twice, that mankind was created in the image of God. Why is something said twice in Scripture? So that you get it. Yeah, for emphasis. When something is said once, you should see it as important. When something is said twice, you should see it as critical. When you understand it, it says here twice that we were created in God's image. It is that that aspect of us is unique in all of creation. We were made for relationship with God. And it says this about us. He created them male and female. So God's intent was very specific in creation. Man and woman. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. So we see in this verse that Jesus says is the truth, is the foundational thought for relationships between a man and a woman. We see some things. Mankind is created specifically for intimacy with God. How do we know that? Because it says twice we were created in his image. We were created unique for a special purpose, for being intimate with God and in a relationship with Him. The second thing that we know that mankind is created for is procreation. How do we know that? What does it say for, that, that we're supposed to do? To be fruitful and multiply. Now, in no way for those who have been called to singleness or who have struggled with fertility, should you see that as a condemnation of you, or that you have not fulfilled God's plans? We live in a fallen world. We live in a place that things don't work out as they should. But when we look back at God's original intent for mankind, what is it? Intimacy with Him, and it's to be fruitful and multiply. And those of us who went to even middle school understand there's only one way that works. There's only one way that that works according to God's design. Now, modern science we can do miracles and stuff, but we understand the way things were made. That's how it's there's a specific way for it to work, and and we were created for dominion over the earth, and we can see then why sexuality is such an important thing for us, why intimacy between a man and a woman is such a critical thing because it is important to God. Why is it important to God? Because it is what He made us for. Our sexuality is innately linked to why God created us, male and female, in order to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and it is foundational for us to be able to fulfill and honor His plans for us. A rightly lived biblical sexual ethic is critically important to be able to honor and glorify God. And that's why we can look here and we can see why Jesus' teaching is so important. Because when Jesus teaches this is the foundation for marriage. This this Old Testament passage is the, the, the root of how we are to understand our relating to one another as husband and wife, as men and women, we understand he doesn't have to tell us all the ways that are wrong because he's telling us the way that is right. He doesn't have to tell us, these are all the ways you could possibly abuse God's intended creation. Because he says, this is the one way you were created for. This is the, this is the, the, uh, the, the means by which God would be glorified and you will live to his glory. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, which is, once again, we talk about a recapitulation or a, a going over again of the story of the creation of man and woman. Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and watch over it. This is God setting Adam, man, that first man up, to be faithful and successful in fulfilling his role of having dominion over creation. Adam's job was to work it and to watch it. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. Now, this word corresponding is interesting in the, in the original language. It paints a picture of opposite and facing. So, a, a helper who corresponds, who faces Adam and is opposite of Adam. Now, those of us, once again, who've experienced anything in life, we look and we go, oh, that kind of makes sense. So when, when the helper faces Adam, he will co- there will be corresponding opposites. <laughs> okay? I did it. Facing one another, corresponding opposites. And Adam goes through all of the animals, and none of them are suitable. And we would all say, Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. But, but God, in, in doing this, wanting a helper for Adam. Adam goes through all the livestock, names them. No helper was found corresponding to him. Facing him, and yet Opposite. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, in, in, in some, some uh, places, scholars think that this word rib is a, an okay translation, but it's more of a, he took the side of Adam. He took from Adam's side, and, and so he took part of Adam to create Eve. He removed something from Adam to make this corresponding helper, this one who looks him in the face and is yet opposite. And the man said, this one, at last. It doesn't tell us how long this helper search went on, but clearly Adam was, you know, at the end of it, And happy for the search to be done. Because this one, at last, out of all the possibilities, this one is born of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, which uh, in the Hebrew is Isha. Uh, For she was taken from men. The word is Ish. And it's a clear connection. There is something so alike and yet so different in what God has created for me. And so, when when we get to this then, uh, God says this in Genesis 2.24, in the summation, this, well, what is this? The fact that they correspond and they are opposites and they face one another. This, this is why the, the reason is because woman came from man, not in a, in a derogatory way, not in a she is less than, but, but she is part of. She is the, 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 the fulfilling component that makes each of them whole. Because of this, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds his, with his wife, and they, the two of them, become one flesh. So Jesus, in talking about divorce, takes us back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And He says, Do you want to know My standard for your sexuality and your relationships with one another, men and women? Here it is. Here it is. You were created with a purpose. You were created with an intent. You were created to be opposite and facing one another. And you were created to be one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now, please, no one feel condemned if your journey in life has taken you somewhere else. But understand, this is God's ideal. This is His perfect plan. This is His desire for all of us. The glory is that even if this has fallen apart at a certain point in our life, He can still bring redemption and bring this truth to bear in your future. So do not be discouraged. My parents were divorced. My dad and my stepmom, they were here a couple of weeks ago. I call her my mom. Why? Because she is. I mean, you know, she didn't birth me, but oh my gosh, the pains that woman went through related to me, right? And I have seen in my parents, uh, my my birth parents, let's say that, my mom and my dad, I, I watched their marriage fall apart. I watched them fail to live up to this. I watched... Destruction come into their lives and mine because they were unable to maintain the standard. But I've watched my dad and my stepmom and my mom and my stepdad after the initial divorce and repentance and renewal was sought, that they now live this standard. They will be together until. They are, they croak, right? And and I imagine that if my dad's six months, six months, six years older than my stepmom, I imagine if she, if he passes away first, she might just crawl in the casket with him, um, you know? And, I, and because they are so dedicated to one another, their marriage is not perfect, but it's good. Now this is God's standard. Where does this standard go? What happens to this? Why are we in the place where we're at? Where we go right to the next chapter? Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind. If you were to flip over there, you'll look and see that that Satan in the serpent who tempted Eve and Adam to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They both ate and they both lost their innocence and became creatures of sin who passed on in their genetics, spiritual genetics, sinfulness to all of us. And what we as people lose... In the fall, the issues, it creates are issues in our intimacy with God. Adam and Eve, their intimacy with God was lost when they were cast out of the garden. No longer could they walk with God in innocence and see him face to face. Instead, now God was distant and it was difficult to understand him. And it was a challenge to be genuinely spiritual people. But not only did they lose their intimacy with God, there was a a consequence in procreation, ladies. Isn't it so exciting that Eve chose this for you—pain and childbearing? But not only that, but we begin to see, see mankind experience not just pain and childbearing regarding procreation, but even misdirected desires, desires that are outside of what God had intended. Sinful desires even, if you will. And then we see that mankind, we have an issue in the effect of our dominion over the earth. Guys, we're so thankful for Adam. Weeds and sweat, it's what we got. It's how we provide. It's how we bring dominion. Women in the workforce, you understand it too. The whole world is full of weeds and sweat. And there is no way to sustain our daily life apart from weeds and sweat. We have been cursed by the choices of Adam and Eve, in direct correlation with each of the things we were created for. Intimacy with God, procreation, and dominion over the earth. And so we are now experiencing the effects of that. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, the Apostle Paul, if we were to read it all, he chronicles the fall of mankind as they go from a sinful creation uh, or a sinful fallen man and woman in Adam and Eve to what culture begins to look like. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the fall of mankind and how we get to where we are today. He says that first we started making idols of God. God. And what that means is, is we know that God said, don't make an idol of him, but we began to make idols representing God. If you remember in Exodus, when they make the golden calf, they are not creating a new God, they are making a statue to represent the one true God. This calf here, it's your Lord, worship it because it's God. We did the same thing as a culture, as as people. We have created false images of the one true God. And that's the first step in falling. And the next step in falling away from God is an absolute rejection of God. To say, he's not important, he doesn't matter, we don't need him. Maybe even he's not real. And then the final step in the fall of mankind and the fall of our cultures is this, a rejection of God's created order. Romans chapter 1 specifically says that men traded in what was natural for the unnatural and began to sleep with other men. That women traded in what was natural for the unnatural and began to sleep with other women. That we see sexuality becoming the ultimate expression of mankind's rejection of God. That when we take the, the thing that we were made for and we cast it aside we devalue it we misuse it we are rejecting god in doing so which is why in this passage homosexuality is not the sin that's the worst in other words or instead it is the ultimate expression of mankind's rejection of god's plan for them because what is god's plan for mankind Be fruitful and multiply so that you might have dominion over the earth. What is, at its core, homosexuality unable to do? To be fruitful and multiply. And so we must understand that to participate in in that is the ultimate expression of rejection of God's plans for our lives. But... It doesn't mean that everything less than that is okay. It doesn't mean that that sexual sin in general is an all-right thing. And we need to, to dig into that because we know that Scripture tells us that the ideal for sexual expression is one man, one woman, one lifetime. This could be like a Southern Baptist thing. If you read the Baptist faith and message, it's in there. One man. One woman, one lifetime. I might make a rap about it. You know, I'm not a very good rapper, but let's let's just do it, you know, so we can remember. One man, one woman, one lifetime is God's standard for sexuality and our sexual expression as believers. But we've been told, the lie that we've been told, the vain philosophy of this world is that, and, and, and we're all familiar with this, love is love. Love is love our sexuality in every form in any expression is acceptable so long as we feel an emotion and and we're we're coming to a place in our culture where feelings and emotions negate the standards of God now i want you to hear what i'm talking about because i'm not just talking about homosexuality i am talking about sexual immorality in every form That our culture has made, and even we as Christians have found loopholes, we think, to make sexual immorality acceptable. Well, my sin's not as bad as their sin. Yeah, it is. Well, Well, my rejection of God's standards is not as bad as their rejections of God's standards. Yeah, it really is. Because to stand in rebellion against God is not something we should take lightly. And that is in every form, in every expression. Because God is so serious, and, and He gives us now details about what it is to live as one man, one woman, one lifetime. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, this is the first time we see the commandments, the 10 words given in Exodus 20. And one of them is, do not commit adultery. Now, we read this, and as people, we began to think things like this. Okay, so I can't commit adultery. What is adultery? Well, adultery is cheating on my spouse. So I guess fornication is okay. Sex before marriage is fine then, right? right? Or, or maybe, maybe sex with someone of the same gender is fine. Or, or maybe sex with an animal. That sounds okay, right? Because God just says, don't commit adultery. And I, I want to tell you, I'm not being salacious, and I am not being, like, like base. I, this is how we are, isn't it? This is how we behave. As long as it's not exactly what God said... Then maybe it's okay. He's probably all right with it. He never said we couldn't. Oh. Well, he did, which is why we get to Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verses 4 through 24, chapter 20, verses 8 through 21, God begins to give specific standards for what it means to not commit adultery. And you might go, well, that's, he's talking about more than just cheating on my spouse. No. Cheating or or adultery is the ultimate expression of of a dishonoring of God's plan for your life. But all of the others actually serve as lesser expressions of dishonoring His plans and His perfect ways. If you were to turn over to to Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. It's where God begins to give His details. If you turn over to Leviticus, Leviticus 18... You will, you will begin to feel like the, the Bible is at least PG-13, if not R, maybe even a little bit of NC-17, if we were to continue to read God's specific commands regarding our sexuality. Leviticus 18, verses 4-24, through 24, verse 4 begins uh, to tell us, You are to practice my ordinances, and you are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances; a person will live as he does them. I am the Lord. And then he begins to detail the prohibited sexual sins. And and so the thing is, is, is it says don't, have, don't 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 approach a close relative. And and then we go well. I mean, how close are we talking here, God? How, I mean, because like you know, what if well, well, what if and so God begins to give exact standards of the people you're supposed to avoid intimate sexual contact with. He he begins to outline what incest looks like and just how displeasing it is to him. And then then he gets to the point where, well, well maybe what about about if, if it's with someone of the same sex? That's okay, right? No, it's not. It's specifically prohibited. It's called an abomination. Well, what about, you know, just got to take the edge off? We got some sheep out there. No. It is prohibited. You must not. uh, Leviticus 20 begins to tell us what the consequences of those prohibited sins are. Not only are those sins, is it reiterated that those sins are prohibited, but it begins to give us the consequences a man with a man, death. A person with an animal, death for the person and the animal. Two adults who are married, death. A man and, and uh, his, I mean just the, the rules are crazy, right? Uh, a man with his aunt, they were be- they'll, they'll be- bear guilt and die childless. A man with his brother's wife, they will bear guilt and die childless. And so what we see in all of these prohibited sexual sins... It's either the death penalty or infertility by the hand of God that are the specific consequences. So we, we must understand, God takes these things seriously. And if Jesus has affirmed Genesis as God's standard, then, then I want you to understand in, in teaching us the, the love God, love yourself, and upon all the law of the pro, or excuse me, upon these two hang all the law of the prophets, He's telling us that these verses are still in, in effect, too. That these standards are still God's standards. That these, these these are still the things that God wants of us. And what it means to be in right standing with him. And so it comes back to, once again, one man, one woman, one lifetime. So, then we might ask the question, well, what about, what about, what about divorce? In fact, in, in the Old Testament, there is a guideline given for divorce, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, verses one through four. What about divorce? Well, it says it's acceptable, but that the woman who is divorced must be taken care of well and, and honored. What about polylove? And and we're in a culture, if you are on any kind of social media, you, you might find uh throuples and and quadruples and, and and whole households of people living together and being sexually intimate with one another. Uh, and, and just living in such a manner as to reject this one man, one woman, one lifetime. And in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 15 through 17, it seems to give standards for what it means to, to uh, potentially be in a poly-love situation and still be doing things rightly. And we look at the Old Testament stories, what's, what's some of the names we can think of? Who, men who had more than one li- wife we got a list of them, don't we? I mean, we've got um, Jacob, right? And, And we see David and Solomon. But here's what Jesus says about those things in the Old Testament, especially divorce. There's a standard for divorce, right? Jesus says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. Why is there a standard for divorce? Why is there a standard for polylove? It's not because it's God's plan or desire. It's because we're hard-hearted, stubborn people. And God allows things, but in allowing them, He does not necessarily command them or affirm them. His perfect standard remains. Jesus says, it was allowed because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. How was it from the beginning? Anybody remember? One man, one woman, one lifetime. Like I said, I'm going to make a rap, and we'll all wrap it next Sunday for, for worship. That would be awkward. We are all so white. Um, Joyce Lee, even you. Um, We are we we one man one woman one lifetime that has always been God's standard, and Jesus says He allowed things because you're hard-hearted. He allowed things because you were rebellious, and He still wanted to give some guidelines and standards for you in the midst of your rebellion. Just because He permits an act, it's not the same as commanding an act or confirming His desire for an act. His perfect standard remains, and so we come back to. One man, one woman, one lifetime. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 12, in, in speaking of the qualifications for a pastor, an elder, and a deacon, Titus 1, 6, in speaking of the qualifications for an elder, a pastor, says this, that they are supposed to be a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That they are supposed to be dedicated to one woman. That is God's perfect standard. In the New Testament, he says, if anyone wants to be a a pastor, they want a good thing. He says, everyone, in fact, should strive and, and long for this kind of faithfulness in their own life to be one man, one woman, one lifetime. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled because God is sort of displeased and finds it uncomfortable to be around the sexually immoral and adulterers. Is that what it says? No, it says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Now, the, words, the word sexually immoral, there is one word in the original language. It's pornea. It is every sin that is in violation of one man, one woman, and one lifetime. Every sin in violation of that standard will be judged. Well, what about? What about if I'm not actually doing it? What, what about if it's just pornography? What if I'm just looking at it? Statistics. Statistics um, are not always true. You can make statistics say anything. And I know that. Right? It's, it's a, there's a saying, 67% of statistics are untrue. Right, and I just made that up. And that's how statistics are. We can manipulate information. But statistics, take it with a grain of salt, tell us that out of 100 men in a church, 95 of them will have looked at pornography or consumed pornography in the last six months. Now, that doesn't mean look around the room and start going, right? We're not counting off. And, And pornography doesn't mean you paid for it. It doesn't mean... It was over the top. It just means you looked at a woman with lust who was not your wife sometime in the last six months on the Internet, on a television show, in a magazine, and you chose to do it intentionally. Now, ladies, you think, oh, we're good. Statistically, 40% of you will have consumed pornography in the last six months. A little better, still not Christ-like. Because here's the standard: Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, "Do not commit adultery." So everybody in the audience goes, "Well, yeah, everybody knows that." But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and the word there is to desire her, not just there's like not some line that you can come right up to the edge of and it's not lust. You know, uh, all right, well, I just I looked twice, and that's okay, right? Ha! Guys, we're notorious for this. Ladies, you might do the same thing. Whoever looks at, at, at someone of, of the opposite sex, to desire them. Ladies, not only can you look at someone, you can read about someone, and think, oh, I wish my relationship was like that. He could sweep me off of my feet. We could go to Bora Bora. He'll bring me drinks with umbrellas. And he'll be oily in the sun. You read it in a book. You see it in your head. We, we, we get how how, per, how how pervasive this is. How destructive this can be. And Jesus says, if you even look at someone with a desire for them in your heart, or you imagine them with a desire for them in your heart, you have committed adultery with them already. You have already violated that command. So not is it only one woman... And one man for one lifetime, it is also one desire for one lifetime. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you can't handle being single and keeping your sexuality in check, do you know what the answer is? Find a good man or woman and get married. Because the only place that sexuality is properly expressed is one man, one woman, one lifetime. In a lasting marriage. Job says this about pornography. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? Job says, how am I even supposed to look when I'm being honest with who I am in my relationship to God? Proverbs 6. Uh, it, it's actually a, a whole discourse on the, uh, the, the, the woman, the prostitute who would lead a man astray. And Proverbs 6.25 says this, Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her, let her captivate you with her eyelashes. Now, ladies, you once again, you might read verses like this and think, "Oh, we're off the hook." No, you're not. The same standards apply for you in reverse. Reply, apply for all of us in what we read, and what we watch, and what we see. And so, our sexuality is not just about the acts that we do; it's also about the things that we consume, and the things that we value. The things that we, we do to violate one man, one woman, one lifetime. And, and Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of people's hearts, come thoughts that are just not quite so good. And if you just do it with the right intent, maybe it'll be okay. No, he says evil. Evil thoughts. And what kinds of, of things accompany evil thoughts? Sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries. Once again, that phrase, sexual immoralities, it's one word in the original language, and it is anything that violates God's standard of one man, one woman, one lifetime. Anything that violates the standard and actual adultery. As Jesus says, we are prone to these things. And, and the, thing, the question then becomes, well, if everybody's doing it, what are we supposed to do about it? A- have you ever felt like that? If everybody's doing it, and, and what is our answer typically? Well, everybody falls short, so it must be okay for me to fall short. Everybody's making mistakes. How can, how can I stand up and say anything to anyone if, if I, I myself am, am struggling with this sin in some form or fashion? How do we, how do we take a stand as Christians when well, we take a stand on, on God's Word? And we take a stand on recognizing some things, some things about ourselves, and, and we'll get to, to those in just a minute. What should we do personally to respond to sexual sin of all types? Flee sexual immorality. Not stand there and think about it. Not make an excuse for it because somebody else is worse than you. Not say, well, it's just entertainment, so it's okay. Flee sexual immorality. And i got to tell you, in preparing this sermon, I have been very convicted about even just the things I count entertainment in my life. That, that I feel like I have given too much ground to sinfulness. And, and I imagine that if we're honest, many of us will feel that that's probably the case with us as well. That we have given far too much ground in our own life to sexual immorality. And it is time to start running away, brothers and sisters. It is time to get off of the internet. It is time to be, if you're married, to be faithful to the one that you're married to, both physically and in heart. In every way possible. If you are not married, begin to look in the right places for the proper expression of your sexuality. To understand, there is no fulfillment for a believer any place other than one man, one woman, one lifetime. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And not only that, Scripture goes on to tell us in this passage, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are sinning. Against the very temple of God in your sexual immorality. Run away. Turn it off. Burn the magazine. Get rid of the book. Change the channel. But everybody, yes, but why does it have to be you, too? Flee. Run away. That's what we must do For ourselves, but then we come to the question of how do how should we respond to sexual sin in the lives of others? And in our culture, what's the one thing that we're not supposed to do? Do not judge, or you too will be judged. First of all, that's out of context, and you all know that, because it goes on to say, deal with your own sin, and then you can help others deal with their sin. Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five. So, how should we respond to the sexual sin of others if we ourselves are working? and repenting of the sexual immorality and sexual sin in our own lives, then this is how we should respond to the first set of people we're going to talk about. And I know we're running a little late. I'm sorry, there's so much here. Oh, I could go like three days and you all would be toast. I'm so sorry. But I hope you're getting something from this. My my prayer for today was not that we would all walk out of this room going, those people are terrible. They're all going to hell because they're homosexuals but instead that every one of us would feel a conviction about our own sexual immorality and the fact that we have room to grow before we have achieved Christ-likeness and that we need to be addressing sin in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13 through in regard to sexual sin. In the beginning of the chapter, he details the life of a man and his stepmother, and how they're together, and how that should not be allowed in the church. And then he says this, I wrote to you in a letter, a letter before this, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. Even in this day, he understands the world is sin-soaked. It is sexually perverse. He says, I I told you to to avoid the sexually immoral, to not associate them with them. I didn't mean people who are unbelievers. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. In other words, someone in our midst, we know them to be an unrepentant, sexually immoral person. Our role as believers is to put them out of the fellowship for a time, hoping, Paul talks about it earlier in the chapter, hoping that by being disfellowshipped, They will come to a place of understanding their sinfulness. Repent, come back to Christ, and come back to the church. And so the answer for us in dealing with the sexual sin of someone who says they're a Christian is repent or disfellowship. That's it. Turn away from your sin and get right with God, or I can't be around you if you say you're a believer. This is not an easy thing, but it is what God asks of us. Now, the thing is, though, that most people who are trapped in a cycle of unrepentant sexual sin, we would probably come to the conclusion that they don't know Jesus in the first place. They can can even call themselves Christians. They can walk the walk. They can do things that are good, but they don't understand the gospel, and they are likely not saved in the first place. And so what is our response to sexual sin in their lives? A little bit... Later or earlier, depending upon which verse you're going from, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. What's the first thing we need to do when we encounter someone in sexual sin and they're an unbeliever? Well, he says a little bit later in talking to the the, the pastor Timothy that this is how we should uh, understand things. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who will kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and males who have sex with males. For slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. We know that there is a, a, a group of people who are in rebellion against God, and included in that group of people are those who are sexually immoral and those who are homosexual. Which is really just sexual immorality at its pinnacle in rebellion against God. And so... We, as Christians, who understand and believe God's Word to be true, and I hope you do believe the Bible to be true, and I hope you do understand, we've already established, we're not here to beat up on certain groups of people or certain sins. Instead, we are here to understand what is good and right and perfect, and then point everyone to it, including ourselves. And so, when we're talking about sexual immorality in the lives of unbelievers lovingly communicate its sinful and damning nature. And when I use the word damning, I mean you will go to hell if you continue in this lifestyle. Now, you don't want to say it that way necessarily, right? But to say there's no way you can be right with God if this is how you define yourself. There's no way you can be right with God and say that homosexuality is acceptable. And it's a a lifestyle, it's how you identify. There's no way that you can be right with God and and have multiple lovers. There is no way, according to Scripture, that you can be right with God and continue in an unrepentant lifestyle of consuming pornography. Ooh, now I'm meddling, right? There's no way you can be right with God if you don't repent of sexual immorality. And pursue his ideal of one man, one woman, one lifetime. So we want to communicate its damning nature, but we also want to give hope, right? Just after Paul gives this list of items that are impossible for a person to be part of the kingdom of God if they participate in them in an unrepentant manner, he says this, and some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to be like... Some of you, when we go back to this list, this list used to define many of us, in fact. I think Paul's a little too gracious in saying some. This list defines many of us. But something has changed. We used to be like that. Paul himself says this of himself. He says, in talking about sinners, he says, I'm the worst one. I'm the worst sinner there is. The man who's writing to us saying... Stay away from sexual immorality. Those who are sexually immoral cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, I'm the worst of the sinners. I'm the worst on that list. Which means that we need to understand that we can be humble and say, you're living in sin and you're unrepentant and you're not right with God, but understand, I struggle too. But that doesn't make it right for either of us. Be humble but resolute. Condemn your own sin just as fervently as you condemn the sin. Of others and then finally there's hope for all of us you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God you used to be that way but when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior you'll be different when you genuinely trust on him as your Lord and Savior you'll be renewed it says this uh, in first Timothy 115 this is a This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save good people who are trying real hard. No the sinners, the very people that Paul says in the list are condemned to an eternity apart from God when they repent and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and pursue a right way of living, one man, one woman, one lifetime, then they too can be made clean and whole and saved. It's possible for all of us. So the final final answer to all of this is to share the redeeming power of the gospel. Are you struggling with pornography today? Jesus can save you. Are you struggling with your sexual orientation today? Jesus can rescue you if you will turn to Him with all of your heart. Are you struggling with an adulterous affair today? Repent and turn away and come back to Jesus, and He can redeem you. You see, there is nothing that can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Accept our own unwillingness to turn to him and repent. Share the redeeming power of the gospel. So, last slide of the morning. Thanks for your patience. But this is such important stuff. I hope you've heard. When we are dealing with sexual sin, number one, run away. Think about the things in your life that are leading you to, to sexual sin. Think about them and be honest we were driving down uh, 79 yesterday. I don't know. We drive around with each other so much. It's like, that's all we do. Uh, Hey, you want to go on a date? Yeah, let's go drive around in circles. Okay, cool. Uh, It used to be cheaper. No, it's not so much. But it's a billboard for a spa on the edge of 79, coming north right at Cannonsburg. For, For most of you, you just, yeah, there it is. But if you're tempted by sexual sin... And pornography, it's the picture of a woman from just below her bosom to just below her crotch. And all like, right? And so, whoa. So it's, it's, it's not really like out there, but it's, it's like it's just enough. Our, our, our culture is sin soaked, you got to run away, you got to turn away. Think think about the commercials you're watching. Think about the shows you're watching. The the books you're reading. Ladies, run away. We've got to remove the sin from our midst. I've got to tell you, brother or sister, if we know you're walking in sexual sin, sexual immorality, we would have to do something about that. And the call for you today is to repent and to deal with it before we have to bring you into church discipline. That doesn't mean go deeper and hide it more. It means drag it out and let God change you today. We're dealing with the sexual sin of those outside the church. Lovingly share the truth. We are affirming choices in other people's lives, that the end result of which will be their eternal damnation in hell. I want you to hear that again. We are looking at other people's lives and we're saying, that's okay. And according to Scripture, what we are doing is we are affirming in their lives choices that will result in their eternal damnation into hell. We should be lovingly sharing the truth with them. I do not, in fact, I would be aghast, I would be so disappointed if anyone in our congregation was picketing somewhere with a sign that said, God hates fags. I would hate I would be so disappointed. But you know what? I would be just as disappointed if you were to say, It's okay. It's acceptable. Love is love. God's okay with it. I'd be just as disappointed. We should be lovingly sharing the truth, we should be humbly resolute. Once again, this is the truth. We must stand on it. And I'm working on it too. I'm struggling with it too. And then share the gospel. Only in Christ Jesus will you find true freedom. Only in Christ Jesus will you find real acceptance. Only in walking His way will you find life to be as satisfying as you're longing for. Share that gospel. Worship team, that you guys would come and make your way up. Thank you guys for your patience. I'm going to work on this. Next week I'm going to try and not go so long. We're going to talk about gender issues. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, some of you, you might just be like, I'm going to watch the live stream and fast forward it. Others will. you... Uh, no, the, the goal here is not to declare what's wrong so much as to say what's right and invite you and me to live up to it. And then everyone around us, through the power available of in repentance and trusting on Jesus Christ as Lord, to live up to the right that we're called to. So uh, I got a few books, resources. If you've got questions, complaints, I'm here. I, I know that, that I, I've spoken with like firmness but understand I'm also okay with discussion and pushback. Ask my kids. Uh, They'll tell me I'm wrong, and they're still alive. (laughs) So, let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You loved us enough to send Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that You, the Word who became flesh, that You have not left us wondering what is right or true but we find truth and righteousness and and holiness in you. And in you, we find an affirmation of everything that has been revealed throughout the Old Testament and the New. That you have spoken these things from the very moment of shaping us in the dust until today. And you have not left us without a clear teaching regarding our sexuality. We pray this morning, That where we are falling short, we would be convicted and repent. We pray this morning that where we are affirming sin that will lead to damnation, that we would repent of that choice and begin to speak the truth in love. Being just as serious about our own sexuality and sexual immorality as we are about that of others. And above all else, help us to proclaim the good news, that you lived and died for our sins according to scriptures, that you were buried, that you rose again on the third day according to scriptures, to prove that our sins can be forgiven, our life can be renewed, and we have the promise of eternity with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the clarity that you give in all that you teach and do. May we live in it.